My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects podcast. Hello there, and welcome to History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects, Episode 15, Zion's Camp. Now, if this is your first time listening to this show, I'd recommend going back and starting on episode one so you can get the full context and the history of how we got to this point. If you don't really care about history or context, then by all means, proceed. Now, if you were to ask most Americans what the most decisive defeat was in U.S. military history, you might hear things like Pearl Harbor or other well-known battles from popular wars. But it might surprise you that some historians consider St. Clair's defeat the worst loss in U.S. history. If you haven't heard of it, don't be surprised as it's not well known. Just to quickly recap, before the year 1800, in Ohio, General Arthur St. Clair and his soldiers were on the eve of battle after a lot of hostilities with the Western Confederacy of Indians. On the morning of November 4th, the Western Confederacy being led by chiefs with fantastic names like Little Turtle and Blue Jacket, they fell upon the American forces right at daybreak catching them by surprise. It was the most lopsided loss in U.S. history at that point. Of the more than a thousand men serving under St. Clair, only 24 made it out unharmed. The battle was so decisive that it caused some major changes in U.S. military. President George Washington forced General St. Clair to resign, hence the name St. Clair's Defeat, and launched the first ever investigation into the executive branch and the War Department. It would also eventually cause the U.S. government to pass the U.S. Militia Acts of 1792. The acts were put into place so that the federal government could quickly call the state militia to arms in the events of an emergency like war with the Indians. So it was law in the 1800s that when you moved to any new town, you had to register with the militia. Most men at this time were somewhat trained on organizing, and it wasn't uncommon for militias to be called into action, as we've discussed for quite a few episodes now. Now, throughout this podcast to this point, we've discussed a lot about Joseph Smith. It seems like we're always discussing some sort of situation for which he wasn't prepared, whether it was not having a proper education, not knowing how to organize a church, or how to plan a city. So when Joseph Smith was just seven years old, He contracted typhoid fever, and that left an infection in the bone between his knee and his ankle of his leg. Apparently, it became so serious that his life was in jeopardy, so a surgeon was called to remove the infected portions of bone without any pain medications. The surgeon was successful, and it also saved Joseph's leg. However, he was left with a bit of a limp for the rest of his life. This limp made it said that Joseph wasn't eligible to join the state militia. So as Joseph was moving from Vermont to New York to Pennsylvania and now Ohio, he hadn't registered for any militia. But it seems that God wants to test Joseph Smith in every area for which he has no training. Today's object is Zion's Camp. So what is Zion's Camp, and how did it come about? The years we're discussing in this podcast dovetail right off the previous episode of 1833 and into 1834. These are really desperate times for the Mormon Church in Missouri. As we recapped in the last episode, the mobs in Missouri have driven the Mormons out of their homes and out of their land of Zion. Most fled the county in the winter, 
and left all their provisions behind, hoping things would eventually get worked out and that they'd be able to return home. So they moved north to Clay County. Here we have just under 2,000 wandering men, women, and children surviving the cold and looking for cheap employment just to get by. It's a very trying time for these early Mormons. Outside of Missouri, however, the church continues to grow. For example, in the fall of 1833, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon would embark on a mission into Canada. They'd only be gone just over a month, but the mission was very successful. They converted just under 50 people and set up a branch there. By 1834, there were around 3,400 Mormons. But Joseph Smith and the members at headquarters in Kirtland were preoccupied worrying about the expelled Mormons in Missouri, so something had to be done. So finally, at the same time, with a bit of a human crisis on his hands with all these homeless Mormons wandering, Governor Dunklin of Missouri decides they've been wronged and writes a letter to Joseph Smith. In it, he basically states that he'd be willing to muster up the state militia and return the Mormons to their lands in Jackson County, but only if Joseph Smith could organize a body of men large enough to protect the lands after the militia disbanded and moved on. Governor Dunklin says he can't keep the state militia there long term to protect the Mormons. Joseph Smith is told he can't just organize his men and have them march into Missouri and start a war because apparently now the law was really important to Governor Dunklin. However, Joseph is told if they are to join up with the state militia, that would be okay. So, with this in mind, in February of 1834, Parley Pratt and Lyman Wright then arrive in Ohio from Missouri to report on the dire situation of the Mormons. This really works up Joseph Smith, who decides that he wants to redeem Zion. He then takes it to God and says he receives a revelation, and that is how we have the call for Zion's camp. Now, it should be noted that Joseph Smith never actually calls it Zion's camp. He called it the camp of Israel, or the armies of Israel. The name Zion's camp would catch on a few years later. So what did the Zion's camp revelation actually say? In it, God commanded Joseph to organize a force to redeem Zion or Jackson County, Missouri. God commanded Joseph to conscript 100 to 500 men for this job, and in it, he even said that Joseph would be a modern-day Moses and that Zion would be redeemed by that power. So, I just want to pause the story here for a minute and say that I don't envy the spot Joseph Smith is in at all. Just to restate the situation in front of him. Zion, or Missouri, which they've been commanded to build up, has been ransacked, and most of the Mormons in the church at that time have been driven out and scattered. Governor Dunklin, who was unwilling or unable to help them before now, says if they can organize a big enough force to hold off the mobs, he'll call out the state militia and escort them back to their lands. The Lord is asking for 100 to 500 men to leave during planting season and go on this trip. Joseph will need a lot of money to provide food and weapons. The trek from Ohio to Missouri is almost a 1,000 miles, and they'll be taking it by foot. And, mind you, they have to do all of this by secret so that Missouri locals don't hear about it and organize for war. And on top of all of that, in order to defend the lands after recovering them, Joseph and his men will need to train these Mormons up on how to fire a gun, how to stand in line, and how to defend a settlement. Remember, Joseph Smith wasn't eligible to join the militia. He's now tasked with recruiting and organizing a force large enough to defend the Mormon lands from the Missouri mobs that were formed by militia men. Lastly, I think Joseph Smith and the Mormons had a lot of zeal here, and were really looking to deliver the scattered Mormons and reclaim Zion. 
we have the benefit of hindsight. But I feel like I want to jump back in time and remind him that Moses, to whom the Lord compared Joseph Smith in the Revelation, didn't lead the children of Israel into battle. He led them from bondage, and Moses never saw the promised land. But again, I have hindsight with me here. So Joseph Smith and the leaders of the Mormon Church start calling for volunteers across the eastern states. Men start to show up, including some from the new branch in Canada and a new convert to the Ohio area by the name of Brigham Young, who will become very important later in these podcasts. So probably just a little bit disappointing, I think, to Joseph Smith is they only get just over 200 volunteers. Among them are some women and children. Not the powerful force I think Joseph Smith was hoping for, but they set off on foot for Missouri. Now, although this is in some ways a military campaign, it's also turning into a spiritual campaign. Most of these men haven't really met Joseph Smith, and now they're marching with him every single day. They have sacrament meetings, they have camp prayers, and listen to a lot of teachings directly from the Mormon prophet. Joseph really starts to develop a very close relationship to a lot of these men. However, in contrast, a few also went in the opposite direction. Some were really kind of hoping this was a straight military engagement, and they wanted a fight. One man in particular named Sylvester Smith, no relation to Joseph Smith, became a real problem. As he had military training, he was allowed a voice in all the organization and the discussions. However, he turned into quite the complainer and would openly argue a lot with the Mormon prophet. Joseph assigned Frederick Williams to record everything that happened every day on the journey, but unfortunately, Frederick's writings have been lost to history. But we do have journal entries from a number of the men that explained some of these stories. Apparently, Sylvester Smith, while drilling his men on his horse, had his horse nipped at by Joseph Smith's dog and threatened to kill the dog. This would escalate into a number of arguments that would cause Joseph to issue a warning that the Lord would chastise Sylvester and those that complained with him. According to the story, the next day, all the men's horses had become very ill. Joseph Smith told them that if they'd repent, the horses would recover. So, as these are Mormon men on a Mormon campaign here, they repent and all the horses but one recover. Sylvester Smith's is the only horse that dies. Now, it would take them a little over a month to make the trek to Missouri, but a lot is already in motion. It seems that someone in Ohio noticed the mobilizing Mormons and tipped off the Missourians. In response, the men of Jackson County began to organize on their own and prepare for battle. Part of this preparation was burning down every house and farm left in Jackson County that belonged to the Mormons. Governor Dunklin then writes a letter to Joseph saying that he can't any longer organize the state militia, but that he wants Joseph to attempt to negotiate with the Jackson County mobs. I can't imagine the state of Joseph Smith at this point. They traveled all this way and now they're told they can't join up with the militia. Remember, despite the hopes of some of these Mormons, this wasn't intended to be an all-out military war. The Mormons were supposed to join the state militia and legally return to their lands and then hold on to them. 200 untrained men weren't enough to beat the Jackson County men, who had by now started having their forces joined by other counties. So, as he's instructed, Joseph Smith and Zion's camp marches toward Jackson County to negotiate. Now the men of Jackson County are worked up, thinking the Mormons are coming for war, and just as they enter Clay County and are right outside Independence, riders approach and tell them that nearly 400 men had amassed just across the river and were coming that night to utterly destroy the Mormons. Some of the Mormons wanted that fight, but the odds were really against them. So the story goes 
that a small black cloud appeared on the horizon, and within hours a massive thunderstorm enveloped the countryside. The river rose almost 40 feet within hours and was uncrossable by the Missourians. The Mormons had to take refuge in an old church, and Joseph Smith was heard to say that God was in the storm. They spent their night singing hymns and resting on benches as the lightning cracked all throughout the night. Regarding the storm, the next day Joseph Smith would say, quote, It seemed as if the mandate of vengeance had gone forth from the God of battles to protect his servants from the destruction of their enemies. End quote. So a few days later, as the river finally dropped, Colonel John Sconce and some of his men from the Ray County militia, who joined the Jackson County men, arrived to negotiate with the Mormons. The storm seemed to have tempered their anger. Colonel Sconce was even to have said, quote, I see there is an almighty power that protects this people, end quote. When Joseph Smith told him about the communications with Governor Dunklin and that they had no plans to engage in an open war, Sconce and his men were surprised. It seems they had been swept up in the rumors that the Mormons were coming for war. They then allowed the men of Zion's camp to meet with the Mormons scattered in Clay County and gave them provisions like clothing and such, and Joseph helped to encourage them. Now, some of the men from Zion's camp really pushed back here as they wanted a fight, and they wanted to win back their lands. The next day on June 22nd, Joseph received a threatening rebuke where the Lord said he was displeased with the men, for they weren't united. He was also displeased with the eastern states of the church because they hadn't raised enough money and they hadn't organized enough volunteers to join Zion's camp. Joseph Smith said they were then told to disband and that Zion, or the lands in Jackson County, would be redeemed at a later time. Now this really angered a number of the men and some apostatized from the Mormon religion as they saw this as a failed operation. Before the men could go home, however, Cholera broke out in the camp, and all 68 men would suffer from the sickness, and 14 would die. The Mormons took this as a sign of the Lord's displeasure with their unfaithfulness, and according to the official history of the Mormon church on July 2nd, Joseph Smith told the camp that, quote, if they would humble themselves before the Lord and covenant to keep his commandments and obey his counsel, the plague should be stayed from that hour, and there should not be another case of cholera among them. According to the journal, the brethren covenanted to that effect with uplifted hands, and the plague was stayed. So the camp disbanded, and some stayed in Missouri. Others headed back out on their missions, and the rest went home. As for all the Mormons that remained in Missouri, the people in Clay County seemed to receive them fairly well. They helped them settle in, helped them provide jobs and set up farms and establish homes. And throughout the rest of 1834 and into 1835, they had relative peace. So where can you read about the call of Zion's camp? The revelation was recorded and is found in the Mormon Church's Doctrine and Covenants section 103. Or you can just Google it and find it online. How did Zion's camp affect the Mormon Church going forward? This may have been one of the biggest influencers on the immediate and long-term direction of the Mormon Church. When Joseph Smith got back to Kirtland, he would organize the rest of the church's leadership. In February of 1835, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the First Quorum of the Seventy were organized. Nine of the original apostles, all seven presidents of the Seventies Quorum, and all 63 other members of the Quorum had served in the Army of Israel, or Zion's Camp, that marched to Missouri in 1834. 
So, although a lot of people view Zion's camp as a failed military engagement, it seems to me it was more of a leadership retreat. Joseph Smith will later explain that, quote, God did not want them to fight. He could not organize his kingdom with 12 men to open the gospel door to the nations of the earth and with 70 men under their direction to follow in their tracks unless he took them from a body of men who had offered their lives and who had made as great a sacrifice as did Abraham. Specifically from this group of men, Brigham Young stood out for his commitment and his faithfulness. Brigham Young not only spent a few months in the prophet's council learning from him directly, he learned some very practical skills around leading a large group of people across the country. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects, Zion's Camp. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joehomchistoryofmormonchurch at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends or family or share it on social media. It means a lot and encourages me to keep producing content. Thanks again for listening.